Join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. That's where we're going to uh, be getting started this morning. Um, as we just continue through the book of 1 Corinthians, I have thoroughly enjoyed this book, uh, as Peyton has as well. Um, and I know he's excited about getting back up here next week and, and bringing the lesson and, uh, as well. On March the 23rd, of 1775. It was Patrick Henry who made a famous speech where he said, give me liberty or give me death, right? And it was that speech that convinced the, the second Virginia convention to send troops to the Revolutionary War. The Declaration of Independence, the second paragraph starts this way. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men were created equal that they are endowed with the Creator, by their Creator, with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We love our liberty in America, don't we? Love it as Americans. We have a Liberty Bell in Philadelphia. We have a Liberty Island that the Statue of Liberty sits on, or stands on. She doesn't sit, she stands. Um, we are all about these liberties. There, there's actually 31 towns across our, our great nation that are named Liberty or Libertyville. We love our rights. The Bill of Rights was created in 1787. 1787 that guaranteed our personal freedoms. But not everyone enjoyed those freedoms, and so those things continued to be amended, Right? especially with the Civil War, and then there came the Civil Rights Act of 1964 where it was signed into place, it ended segregation in public and private facilities, it outlawed discrimination against race and color, religion, sex, or national origin. We love our liberties, we love our freedoms, we love our rights, and if you don't believe it, all you have to do is look over the last couple of years. With everything that's been going on with this, this coronavirus, and you've heard this a lot, my rights, my freedoms, right, my liberties. And if you start, if we feel like that any of those are going to be taken away from us, you better watch out, right? It's the American way of sorts. But the question we have to ask is, is that the Christian way? And so in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1, we begin in a very interesting way. He says, now concerning food or meat, is actually the word should be here, meat offered to idols. Now he's introducing a whole new topic. Remember, the Corinthians had sent him a letter. They had lots of questions. And every time he says, now concerning, we know he's answering one of those questions. And they had questions about this idol meat. There were those... Uh, and, and by the way, it seems like it would be a very simple answer. It seems like Paul would say yes or no. I mean, you know, the Gentiles had very few restrictions when it came to the council of, of Jerusalem. And it says, listen, you Gentiles, one of the things, we don't ask a lot here, but one of the things is abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, right? Jesus, in writing to the seven churches of Revelation, he writes to two of those churches, and he, he he gets on to them because there were those who were eating this food that had been sacrificed to these idols, which we see there was a connection to sexual immorality. 
But Paul doesn't just take a, no, don't do this, or yes, this is okay. In fact, he takes chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, and then the first verse in chapter 11 (laughs) to make a long discussion about this thing. Because it was a little bit more complex with what was going on in Corinth and some of these other places, it seems. And maybe there was just a lot of confusion. And so one of the main issue, it seems, as you go through these, in fact, all of this goes along together. Chapter 9, we often think that's just a separate thing. No, 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 it's all a part of what he's talking about here. But the main thing seems to be that they were eating... There were those Christians who were eating at the festivals in the temples of these false idols. And so that seems to be the major discussion. There's going to be this little blurb towards the end, and we'll see it, where he talks about something different, where he's talking about, well, what if you eat it, get it from the marketplace and you eat it at your home? Because that was one of the ways you could eat this meat as well. Now we don't have time to read three chapters. I don't have time to give you every little detail that's in those chapters, and there is some amazing stuff that's in it. Let me tell you, I was was still working yesterday trying to get all of this stuff the way it should, but I'm going to give you a couple of highlights. I'm going to give you a couple of things that absolutely should sum up our lives as Christians, as a community of people. And the first thing is this, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Look at chapter 8. First three verses. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know, and by the way, notice the quotation marks. All of us possess knowledge. This is coming from the letter that they sent. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So he begins with this quotation. And this is from, we're going to find out, there were those who felt like they were were the knowledgeable group. They were the stronger Christians. And so they believed that it was okay for them to to go and to, to eat this, this to eat the, in the feast of these, in these pagan temples that had been off this meat that had been offered to the gods. Because they said, we've got knowledge. You may say, well, what is this knowledge that they have? The knowledge that they said, if you go on in verses 4 through 6, is we believe that there's only one God. That's the Father. We believe there's only one Lord. That's Jesus. We, we, uh, we don't believe these idols matter to anything. We don't believe that they're real. We believe they're just statutes. We don't believe they have any bearing on us for good or evil. They also believe that food really doesn't matter. And, and, you know, look, Gentiles, they weren't required to, to follow after the Jewish dietary laws in order to please God. And so food, it just doesn't, that's not what's going to please God in, in, in such and that way. And so those who have a problem with us going over and eating in these temples, they're the weak ones. They just don't have the knowledge that we have. We just don't believe. We're just going there for the meal. We're going there for the social aspect. And we'll talk about that in just a second. 
But the knowledgeable Christians, they believed they, they could go. In fact, they probably b- believed that us going just shows how mature we are. It just shows, you know, that we, it just demonstrates the great freedom that we have. Here's the thing. They're not wrong. So when we have a meal, we'll walk over to our founder's hall. We have a place that we eat a meal. We eat meals together. It's wonderful. And in these temples, in fact, there was one in Corinth, the temple of Asclepius, there were these dining rooms off of the temple. They opened up into this courtyard where people would come and they would eat and they would feast. And so the wealthier Christians would be invited to these festivals that happened. And sometimes they were festivals that were birthdays. Sometimes they were weddings. Sometimes they were clubs or parties or healings attributed to this God or other social events. And so it was looked at as really necessary for their professional lives to not only go, but maybe even sponsor some of these things. And if they go to these things, you know, they're going for, you know, this, the socialization of, of things. In other words, we're not going for the gods, we're just going for the socialization. But they're like, but we have to eat the meat. Because if we don't, it's an insult to the host. So the wealthier believers, listen, we readily accept that we have some spiritual differences, you know, from those who are weak. They just don't have the knowledge yet, the maturity that we have. Paul's response probably probably surprised the knowledgeable group because he doesn't take their side. They're right in what they said about there's only one God, that these gods, they're nothing, But he issues a warning. Knowledge is defective if it fails to build up the community of Christ in love. Don't care how much knowledge you have. And he says this knowledge that we have at times makes us puffed up. It's another word for arrogant. It's another word for haughty. This is not the first time that Paul has used this word on the Corinthians. In the English Standard Version, sometimes it translates it as puffed up. Sometimes it just says arrogant. Because that's what they were. They had this excessive self-esteem about their own spirituality. And yet, ironically, those who boasted in their own exalted knowledge, they were the very ones that Paul says, you don't have true knowledge. Because you have failed to understand what real love is about. What real knowledge is. Knowledge is something of love that builds up the community of the faith. I grew up in a conservative side of the churches of Christ. Uh, Many were armed. I'm one of them with scriptures that prove we're the only ones. We're the only ones that got it all figured out. And some of those passages were grossly taken out of context. Some of those, I agree. I believe that we got some things right that maybe some others out here, they just don't have right. But no matter how much knowledge, even if we got it all right, I saw some of those same people just be filled with hatred towards those who believe differently. Shouting people into hell. 
Condemning people on things that, be honest, wasn't even in there. There was a lack of love, and not just from those who are outside the church, but that would be anybody who disagreed with them inside the church on things like we talked about last week, on matters of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Or maybe even the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Things such as hand clapping or praise teams. Or, believe it or not, whether or not we can have a, 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 a softball team in a church league. I, I, was a, I was in an area in Alabama. I found out later, this is early, early on, first starting out, and I found out later that this is known by all the ministers in Alabama and the region. This is the most divisive area in the entire state. Most divisive. Church splits. I mean, every church that you find, they've had a split. And I can tell you being there, you had a lot of people who believed they had supreme knowledge. But they were tearing up the church and not building it up in love. Over the last several years, I've had more dealings with the progressive side of the church. I still hold to a lot of conservative beliefs, but there are things I've discovered that I was wrong on some positions. I've gained knowledge. I'm part of the knowledgeable group. And let me tell you something about this side of the church. A lot of times they can have the reputation of believing that they are the enlightened ones. That they're the ones who truly love. They're not like this conservative side and they're the mean-spirited ones. But I can tell you that isn't always the case. I'm in a group of about a thousand people made up of Church of Christ ministers and elders and, and other members of the church. And, and we debate and talk about various things and look at different things. And I can tell you in that group, the most antagonistic, the most arrogant, the most mean-spirited are the progressive ones. And that doesn't mean it's all of them. Any more than it means it's all the people who hold conservative views are mean-spirited. But I'm here to tell you that just because you feel like you have knowledge, whether it's on this side or whether it's on this side, it does not matter. I've dealt with Christians who constantly complained about other churches, or maybe the entire church, except for their little group, that we are the enlightened ones. We're the ones with true knowledge, always judging everybody else and how they are because they're one way or they're not enough of this way. And they lack love to build up the church. In fact, anytime you talk to them, they're just negative, always negative. The church has been tested over the last couple of years. You know, we mentioned this. It's, you know, it, look, we're, we're still in this time. And everybody, not just those outside the walls, but inside the church, worldwide, you ready for this? We are the most knowledgeable people when it comes to masks and vaccinations and political parties and stances and everything. Did you know that? Everybody believes they're right. And let me tell you this, you might have gotten it right every single thing, but let me ask you this. Do you think Jesus cares? Ask yourself, over the last couple of years, have you been more vocal and concerned about your rights and your freedoms as an American 
than you have in building up the church, the community of Christ? I know of a church. I'm not going to name it. Don't even know if you'd know where it is, but I know the preacher there. There are members during all this, when especially in the heat of all the pandemic and everything else, they got on the church social media page that anybody can see. And they started having these all-out word battles over masks. Ugly. I know there was one young Christian family that completely left the church because they saw the ugliness of what was happening about a mask. I don't even know where that, those people were landing on, on some of these things. I don't know, but I know this. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Paul doesn't disagree with their understanding, but about idols and meat, sacrifice to the pagan idols, but their application was wrong. And that's what he calls them on. I mean, look, they're, they're, they're right. Look, there's one God, one Father. There's one, one Lord, Jesus. And by the way, what Paul is bringing out here, it is an echo to the Shema. If you don't know what the Shema is, you probably do. We sing the song sometimes. It is the greatest proclamation of Israel's faith. And you know what this thing is all about? It is all about the idea that we exist for God and we do not exist for ourselves and for our rights and for our freedoms, for our own personal things. I exist for God and for whatever he gives me. In fact, the very next thing he says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. We learn that the Lord God of Israel, our God, he is a jealous God. He will not accept idolatry. And folks, when we talk about if you want to be a part of this church, you've got, to, you've got to absolutely buy into our theme. It's three very simple things. And the very first thing is this. You've got to love God. You've got to love God. That's first. Now, chapter 10, if you go to chapter 10 here in 1 Corinthians, Paul starts using all these examples about Israel and their wilderness uh, wanderings as an example to kind of pull some of this stuff together. And it's really interesting. In fact, verse 1 is fascinating. Paul calls them our fathers. Okay, you need to sit up and take notice here. He's talking to a predominantly Gentile church. And he says, these are our fathers that we're talking about. They are not the physical descendants of Israel, but this is our spiritual ancestors. And we need to see them as such. Because we too have been grafted into the covenant people of God, Romans 11, in such a way that we belong to Israel, Galatians 6 and verse 16. So the story of Israel is our own spiritual ancestors. And so what he's showing here is, just as the Corinthians, they left behind the idolatry of the Corinthian lifestyle when they were baptized into Christ. 
He said, so did Israel. They left behind the, 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 uh, the idolatry and all the evil and pagan ways of Egypt when they too were baptized in the cloud and in the sea. He says, just as you have eaten and drank of, of uh, that, this, this spiritual food and drink that's been given to us by way of the Lord's Supper, he says, so too, Israel. They were given the spiritual food and drink out in the wilderness from God. They were given God's manna. They were given, they were given the water that came from the rock. In fact, he even makes a... Do you see this kind of thing? That rock that they drank of is Christ. Oh, we could just go on about that, but we can't. Because we're, we're trying to show something here. Because this is the warning. They were eating. They were being taken care of by the Lord. But they committed idolatry. They participated in the idol feast that led to other immoral behavior. And he says, this is how this is coming to fruition as to what's going on. And notice the warning he gives in verses 9 and 10. From, it comes from Numbers chapter 21. A lot of you remember this story growing up, hearing the story about Israel testing God, complaining about this food that he has given to them. And he says, some of you, Corinthians, you have tested Christ by attending these pagan temples and participating in these idol feasts. Or at least... At least you're endangering those who are weak. That takes us back to chapter 8. And let's keep reading. Verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, though through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat. And no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. Oh, look at that word. The brother for whom Christ died Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. He disagrees with the Corinthian slogan that all of us possess knowledge. He says that's not true. Not everyone has a higher knowledge that maybe some of you have about, uh, about these idols. Paul warns those who are flexing their spiritual muscles, or rather their spiritual liberties, that they better watch out to see what effect it is having on others who are around them. Because the weak is going to see these knowledge boasters eating in the temple of an idol. They're going to be drawn back to this power of this pagan cult that they had left to begin with. And Paul says, they are in danger of being destroyed. Folks, he's not saying it violated their conscience in the sense of, you know what, you've offended me. This is a much stronger word. Paul's concern 
is that they're going to see them acting in such a way and they are absolutely going to fall out of the sphere of God's powerful saving grace because they're going to go back to their pagan ways. If you look at verse 11 again, notice what he says. This weak person is destroyed, the very brother whom Christ died. Now you just sit with that for a second. He says, this weak person Jesus died for, he says, can you, can you not at least not eat the meat of idols in their temples? Can you not at least do that for the weak? Jesus gave everything he had for them. Christ died for this person, but they were so fixated on exercising their own freedom that they were willing to jeopardize the salvation of the weaker. It is sin against Christ. Folks, we need to understand and we need to believe that there are those who are weaker and there are stronger. There are those who have certain knowledge and there are those who don't have that knowledge quite yet. And we shouldn't judge the whole church based on one way or the other. If food causes my Christian brother or sister to fall, I should be willing to never eat meat again. The word meat that he uses here, it's different than he used above. Before he's talking about, it was specific, idle meat. Here, he's just talking about animal flesh. It's a generic term. What he's saying is that if it offends them, then I won't, I'll become a vegetarian. That's, that's how serious a matter it is. And let me tell you, it'd have to be pretty serious for me to become a vegetarian. But that's what Paul says. And folks, that's exactly what we're called to do. That's part of our covenant, being a covenant people of God, who we say we are to be. We're to love God, and number two, we are to love others. Here's what's not on there, is loving your rights as an American citizen. Here's what's not up there, loving my liberty as a Christian because I know more than other people. Number one is love God. Number two is love others. That's the way this whole thing's going down. Look, we're not talking about, you know, bending to anything that offends other people. That's, that's exactly what we're saying. The church, the church shouldn't be, you know, handcuffed by, by people who are narrow-minded or have legalistic requirements. And when I use that term, sometimes people think I'm just talking about one side, of, you know, conservative side. Let me tell you, it's both sides. Conservative progressives. And we, and we can, and, and listen, we just can't be held hostage by those things. And it's fine to hold a conservative or progressive views. It's okay. It really is. We just have to make sure that we're not taking something that's an opinion and we're putting it into a divine status. That we're taking something that the Bible doesn't even speak about and we're putting it in as, well, you're going to be lost if you do this or you don't do this. That's where we have to be. But, but this is stronger. He says this is something that could destroy them. So I'm going to deal with something controversial. Why not? Paul gets to deal with controversy. Why can't I? Well, better think about that. Paul just wrote letters and then he'd leave. But anyway, let's take, let's take drinking alcohol. I don't believe, based on my studies in Scripture, that it's a sin to drink alcohol. Just don't. I think you're going to find right the opposite. Drunkenness, that's a totally different scenario. That's a totally different scenario. 
Someone says, yes, but all it takes, one drink, and they can become an alcoholic. It's true. And if you've ever dealt with anybody who've had an alcoholic in the family or you ever dealt with a friend who's ever, you know this is a terrible thing. And I looked it up, 12% of Americans are alcoholics. But if we're going to put that in the same boat, we've got to be very careful. 5% of Americans are addicted to food. 5% of Americans are addicted to painkillers. Think about that for your next surgery. 7% are addicted to shopping. Uh-oh, I, I, I just lost some of you. 8% are addicted to the internet. 10% are addicted to video games. However, if I want to have some people over, or some one of you want to have some folks over, and, and maybe it's to have a meal together, some of your Christian friends here, or maybe it's, uh, you know, for the Super Bowl or whatever it is, and you know, and you're going to be serving alcohol, and you know there's somebody that's coming that is a recovering alcoholic. You can sit there and you can say, well, you know what? It's my religious freedom. I can do, I can do this. In fact, if they don't like it, then they just shouldn't come. Or if they're worried about it, they shouldn't come. Or maybe we just say, well, I just don't invite them at all. Here's what I think Paul would say. You're puffed up. Love builds up. And I think he would say, Jesus died for that person. In fact, that may be the very reason they got out of alcoholism in the first place is because of Christ. Led them out of that. And I think he would say, Jesus died for that person. You're telling me you can't not drink for a night? That's just one simple little, little example. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. And what our motto should be as Christians is simply this. Give me love or give me death. Don't go and die on the hill of your freedoms, of my rights, of what I want. but down the hill of extreme love for one another. One more thing. Use your freedom for the glory of God. Use your freedom for the glory of God. Go over to chapter 10. We're going we're to finish up in chapter 10, beginning in verse 23, because he's going to deal with the second thing, but there's a point that, that I want to pull out of it. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Okay, that's what he's been talking about. Eat whatever is sold in the marketplace without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Okay, now we've got a different scenario going on. This is not about eating in the temple anymore. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed uh, to go... Eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. In other words, you may have a problem with eating idol, meat to idols, but don't go in there, you know, trying to ask every little question. But if someone says to you, this, is, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all 
to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. All our actions, all our actions should be to the glory of God. That said, we're free to eat whatever, whatever we choose to eat, as long as it's done with thankfulness to the one who gives us all things. Paul agrees fundamentally with their judgment about the meat sacrificed to idols outside of the temple setting. They can eat those things and, and just not worry about its source. Paul quotes a slogan of the Corinthians for a second time in this book. You may have caught it. He says, all things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. But this time, he adds something different. He adds, but not all things build up. Well, what builds up? Didn't he just tell us? at the first part of this discussion. It's love. Love is what builds up. Not all things are lawful, but love builds up. To do something for the glory of God, it means we reflect God's glory in the way we live. And to do our best at it. Sometimes we're going to fail. We just are. But when others look at us, we want them to say, I think this, this is what Jesus looks like. This is what I believe that Jesus would do. Our culture says, give me liberty or give me death. But that's not the hill Jesus died on. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and to set men free. Instead, Jesus' motto was, give me love or give me death, and that is literally the hill Jesus died on. But he died alone for you and me. I know we don't have paganism going on out in our world, certainly not like we see here, but I think the principles absolutely are part of things. Don't let your knowledge puff you up even if you're right don't let it puff you up don't let our culture which nationalism is an, its own idolatry you don't let that become your idol where I demand my rights and my freedoms it doesn't mean that we can't do things and we can't but it means that's not what defines me And I'm certainly not going to be out here demanding all of my rights and my freedoms, whether it's in the church or outside of the church, but I'm not in the church and building it up. Knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. Let's pray as we conclude. Father, we come to you. We just give you thanks. We thank you, Father, for your patience for us. Father, I'm certainly thankful for your patience with me over the years. In those times that I've been the one who's weak, 
when I'm the one who, who was proud and puffed up, when I allowed my own knowledge to be used in a, in a hateful way rather than one in a, in a good way, in a positive way. And Father, I know that I still am going to need your grace. I know that we as a church, we're always going to struggle with these things at times. But Father, may we always be brought back to this text. May we always be people who build each other up, that this church community is so important. It was so important to your son that, that he died for every single person who is here. Father, let it be important to us to do even the minor things, to demonstrate our love for you and for one another. Father, just help us as we live in this imperfect world, as it continues to pull us off in one way or the other, with all the distractions that are out here in our world. Father, just keep us focused. Keep us focused on you. Keep us focused on your community. Father, we just pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.